นโมทัสสะภะวะโตระโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะวะโตระโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะวะโตระโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนามะสังฆ์ normal circumstances on a New Year's Eve such as today our Dhamma Hall would be quite uh, filled with uh, many guests who came to the monastery because they wanted to mark In some meaningful way, the ending of the year and also the beginning of the new year. And those of you that have been here will remember that we have many visitors uh, joining us to participate in the evening puja and the meditation and the forgiveness and renewal ritual that we would have. And and it's understandable, and we've been doing it for. Several decades now, it's understandable that people want to use this occasion to emphasise the fact that there are some things that matter more than others. It's not the case that everything matters equally. There are there are some things that matter profoundly, and and so although on this occasion we. We don't have the usual number of guests here. I think it's still a useful theme for contemplation. Not just what is it that matters most, but how do we equip ourselves with the ability to engage such a contemplation? In our heart of hearts, we feel, we sense there there are profoundly important matters. Like, for instance, honesty. That's something that correctly comes to my mind, and I think about what matters most. I think, well, honesty matters. Being honest with myself, being honest with others, and how physically fit I am. Well, that sort of matters, but eventually, my physical fitness is going to wane, and there's not much I can do about it. However, honesty—that's something that we can continually work on, and. So, not just what matters most, but also how we equip ourselves, how we prepare ourselves to be able to contemplate such a question. And before delving too deeply into that contemplation, I, I'd like to also. Raise up the aspect of such contemplations where we're together like this. This is not a process of instruction. This is not. This is not a lecture on Buddhism. It's not a lecture on virtue. It's not a lecture on wisdom, but rather an invitation for us all to share a contemplation. In this case, on the theme of how do we prepare ourselves to be able to recognize what really matters. 
and what really does matter anyway. If our hearts and minds are not open and receptive, and, and if, for instance, our mind is preoccupied with agreeing and disagreeing, that head activity can get in the way of contemplation. Following our habitual agreeing and disagreeing, accepting and, and rejecting tendencies will keep our awareness on a very shallow level, I would suggest. And so in joining in this contemplation on what is it that really matters and how do we pick up such a theme of contemplation anyway, I would encourage us all to see if we can put to one side that evaluating, assessing mind. It's not saying there's anything wrong with the ability to assess and evaluate and discriminate, very important aspect of intelligence. However, when it's compulsory, when it's always busy, when it's always active, then there's a chance our contemplation is not going to go very deep. And we'll be up in our heads with the opinions and views that we have about things. And, and in this exercise, of course, it's important that we're also feeling what our heart has to say about it. And feeling what all of us, the whole of us, has to say about it. So an example of that which gets in the way of clear contemplation, sensitive consideration, it would be useful, I suggest, that we register the fact that we all feel afraid. We all have the experience of fear. Those who have done their work, finished their work, their experience of fear is quite different from ours. Their experience of fear is it's something that informs their behaviour according to circumstances. If a, a dog with rabies is about to bite the leg of some awakened being, then I'm sure that that awakened being will get an adrenaline hit and the blood vessels will constrict and they'll have the impulse to move quickly. It's called fear and it's an appropriate response. However, for the rest of us who are still engaged in the work of finding our true identity, what happens when we feel afraid? We tend to constrict on the whole level of being. We collapse, we contract. For an awakened being, their relationship to fear is not influenced by the tendency to find identity in moods. We all experience positive and negative moods and get caught up in them and cling to them and attach to them and, and believe that it's me. I am happy, I am sad, I am pleased, I am displeased. For those who've done their work, they still experience joy and sorrow and gladness and sadness. However, they're not seeking identity in those movements, in those moods. For them, their identity is realised as selfless, just-knowing awareness. However, when we experience even a rational fear, 
like something is attacking us. We tend to become it. We, can, we tend to get lost in it. Not to mention the imagined fears, like that, that example that's given in the scriptures where you're walking along a track and you see a rope and you think it's a snake and you, you freak out and only to realize, well, that was totally unjustified. And that's normal for most of us these days. The level of collective anxiety that there is in the world, imagined fears, born out of not seeing clearly, not feeling accurately the circumstance in which we find ourselves. And particularly at a time like this where not just is there a pandemic that's understandably making people feel very threatened, but even without the pandemic there was already a, a very high degree of shared anxiety and born out of many factors, not the least being the the failure of religion to equip people with inner structures. That means that they, they feel themselves to be good and they feel themselves to be able. They don't experience themselves to be the centre of the universe without wise, skillful, spiritual instructions. It's very normal for beings to fall into the trap of taking every experience totally seriously. And my views, my opinions become exaggerated and we're susceptible to, as I've said many times before, we're susceptible to narcissism. When the sense of self is not protected with virtue and with, with conventional wise perspective, then that sense of self tends to be inflated and so that's one of the conditions that have contributed to the collective sense of anxiety that is so widespread these days. There's also, of course, the, the rate of change. We do like things to be predictable, although we might get interested and enjoy change to some degree when things change too much, too regularly, too dramatically, we feel threatened. And that's thanks to technology in particular. The rate of change is accelerating at a phenomenal rate these days and has been for the last few decades at an increasingly accelerating rate. And so it's understandable, even without the life-threatening pandemic, it's understandable that we human beings feel afraid. However, if we don't know how to acknowledge that fear if we don't know how to be honest about that fear, then it goes into unawareness and it clouds, it can cloud everything. It's like a, a toxin in the water. We might think we're drinking water, but we don't know that there's some poison in the water. And so it is with daily life when we feel afraid, as we all do, if we're not acknowledging it, if we're not there for it, if we don't really we're not really truly aware of it, then it can be poisoning our awareness and that can have a serious effect on all our judgments, including a contemplation on the theme that we're considering this evening. How do we arrive at a recognition of what really matters most? How do we get to that point? Yes, we think there are some things that matter more than others, but how do we equip ourselves. Well, if the heart is 
clouded and the mind is obscured with unacknowledged, unreceived, un misunderstood fear, then that gets in the way. So a lot of our practice, I would suggest, is how to be honest about the fact that we feel afraid. Where do we feel afraid? How do we meet fear? It's not just a mental exercise. It affects the whole nervous system, it affects the body, and it can be sweating, the heart can be pumping. And How do we work with that in a way, a realistic way, so it's not an obstruction? It's very difficult, I expect most people would agree, it's very difficult when we feel afraid to not think that it shouldn't be this way, I shouldn't feel afraid. However, as I was saying a minute ago, awakened beings are going to experience fear. It's just their relationship to fear is different from ours. They're not finding identity in fear. They're not finding identity in joy. They're not feeling ide finding identity in happiness. They're not finding identity in any condition. They know their identity to be awareness itself. Just knowing self is awareness. So, if we look at this from our experience, instead of trying to get over fear, instead of trying to get rid of fear, instead of making fear wrong and saying it shouldn't be this way and I'm failing because I feel afraid, maybe we could be approaching it from the perspective of looking at our relationship to fear. Is it possible to feel fear without clinging to fear? Is it possible to feel glad without getting lost in gladness? As an experiment, I, I think it's worth trying the example of clenching your fist. Now, if you, if you got, haven't trimmed your fingernails recently, you can clench your fist and really tight, and the fingernails dig into your palm and it hurts. That is called clinging. And if you just relax it just a little bit, just a minuscule, it looks pretty much the same. That's called not clinging. And what's the feeling? The huge difference. It doesn't look big, but it is big. It feels very different. And how do we know the difference? Well, we feel the difference. If you cling, it feels like this. Ouch. If we don't cling, we just hold, it feels like that. Or like holding a young child. How do you know the right way to hold a child? Obviously, a baby is very vulnerable. Obviously, we don't want to hurt it. How do you hold it in the right way? Well, somebody can tell you you've got to support the head and you've got to hold it like this. But when it comes to it, how do we do it? Do we really figure it out because somebody told us how to do it? Or do we find it in a book? How do you, you find it because you feel it? You feel the right way of holding without hurting. In that case, a baby, but also with regards to ourself. Can we hold our experience, including the experience of fear, can we hold it in a way whereby it informs us? Some things are frightening, like, you know, to be afraid, like uh, we often talked about heriotopa, the fear of falling into shameless behaviour. That's something that's it's wise, it's skillful, it protects us. You know, to have shameless thoughts, you want to hurt somebody, and you have the impulse to hurt somebody, and then this 
sense of wholesome shame kicks in, and you think, that's not right, that's not a right thing that you feel embarrassed about. That is what the Buddha called Lokapala, protector of the world, Hiri and Otapa. He protects us from doing that which is unwholesome. So fear can be a protection, fear can be an aspect of intelligence. We're not talking about trying to get rid of fear, but how to let fear inform us, how to feel fear in a way that we don't freak out. So looking at our relationship with fear and also looking at the things that trigger fear, like to, for instance, to assume that we shouldn't have to deal with chaos. The world on so many levels right now is so chaotic and if we're not careful we can just blame the circumstances. Somebody should have stopped it happening. Somebody, I don't know who, but somebody. Maybe God should have stopped it from happening or some politician or somebody who's older. There's got to be somebody responsible for this chaos and so we blame the situation. And what is that based on? That's based on the assumption that we're entitled to live without chaos. And that is really, really unrealistic. When has it ever been that there's not been chaos? Chaos is a fact. It's, it's not all there is. There's also order within chaos. There's Dhamma. There's reality. There's truth. But there's always been chaos. And the Buddha in his wisdom emphasized studying chaos, studying impermanence, studying uncertainty, insecurity, looking at it, recognizing it. He also, in his wisdom, encouraged studying the knowing of chaos. That's worth noticing. He didn't just talk about noticing chaos, but he also talked about developing the knowing, the satipanya, that ability to step back and look with clarity at what's taking place. So we're not just concerned about looking at instability and uncertainty and permanence and, and chaos, although there's plenty of evidence of it around, but would also emphasize that we need to, if we want to be able to live with these conditions without suffering from them. The practice that he encouraged was to observe the chaos, observe the impermanence, and also work on developing that just knowing ability. Or what, in our practice, we talk about going for refuge, going for refuge to the Buddha. The Buddha is that undisturbed, just-knowing awareness that can accommodate any experience without any tendency to cling or contract. The awakened Buddha was completely free from suffering because he was free from all habits of craving and, and clinging. As a part of the cultivation of the refuge in the Buddha, it's, it can be useful, it can be skillful, to, in a moment of recognizing how we're about to get caught up in a mood, a mood of 
disliking. Somebody said something to us that made us feel bad and we can feel this mood of disliking, even resentment arising. As we notice it, we can remember our refuge in the Buddha and just drop in the suggestion, just knowing. Just know- Yes, there's this movement, there's this movement of disliking, this movement of irritation or even, even aversion, potentially building up to rage or hatred. But before it builds up too much, we can just drop in there, this is just knowing, in the body, in the heart, in the mind, just knowing the feeling of dislike. It's like this. Remembering the knowing, not just remembering the conditions, but also remember the knowing of the conditions. And similarly with, with fear. As I was saying before, it's so easy to feel that we're wrong because we're feeling afraid. We can prepare ourselves in advance with this commitment to the, the refuge and selfless just knowing awareness and, and the Buddha. And so when fear is about to arise, you can just drop in the suggestion. You can try that. Just try dropping in the suggestion. Just knowing. Inhibit. Break the pattern of getting lost in fear or getting lost in gladness. So getting back to the theme of considering what matters most and how we prepare ourselves to contemplate such a question. It's quite likely that our mind is going to very quickly come up with answers. What matters most? Inequality matters most. The environment matters most. Dealing with slavery, after all these years, there's still slavery going on on the planet, matters most. The massive emerging issue of AI, artificial intelligence, that matters. Artificial intelligence really matters. There's these algorithms now churning out algorithms that human beings are not involved with, and who knows where that's going to lead? Nobody knows. Nobody knows because the algorithms are doing it, and they're really powerful, really powerful, and having an effect on, on humanity. They all matter. However, those are the issues. How well are we engaging those issues? How capably, how effectively are we engaging those issues? Yes, they all matter. But have we prepared ourselves properly? If our heart is contracted with fear, fear of failure, fear of being disliked, fear of being misunderstood, fear of losing a sense of security, fear of old age, fear of sickness, fear of violence, all of us in various ways know these know some of these forms of fear. And if we're not free enough in our awareness to receive the feeling of fear without becoming lost in it, then our investigations are going to be very partial. Investigations are going to be biased, distorted. So if we do want to be effective, and I'm sure we do want to be effective in our 
investigations and honest with ourselves and honest with each other, then we can turn to, with increasing commitment and increasing gratitude, these teachings that we've received from the Buddha, like the encouragement to equip ourselves with goodness. We might be drawn towards developing insight, developing insight, real profound insight into the Four Noble Truths, insight into the Paticca Samuppada, insight into emptiness. We may be inspired by the, such teachings and feel drawn to it. However, if we haven't done our groundwork, then it's like trying to do a PhD when you're at primary school. There are certain conditions, certain structures that need to be in place. And, and at least this is what I mean when I refer to uh, building up our storehouse of goodness. Goodness is like fuel that, that, that energizes us and, and sustains us. And without it, we're very easily overwhelmed. If we have a, a strong sense of goodness, then we're protected to some degree from being overwhelmed. So goodness is like the fuel that propels us on the journey. Wisdom is that which shows us there isn't any me taking this journey. There isn't any me who is struggling. There isn't any me who is understanding. Goodness and wisdom together, that's the essence of the Buddha's teachings. And Personally, in my own private morning devotional practices, I, I regularly make this conscious wish that whatever happens today may it be for the development of goodness and wisdom. And goodness is, we might think that it's something, oh, we've got enough of that already. However, if you take the Buddhist, Buddhist teaching seriously, you realize there's always room for developing more goodness, more forgiveness, more generosity, more patience, for sure, more equanimity, for sure, more stability of attention, for sure, more kindness, for sure. The teachings on loving-kindness, the kind of loving-kindness that the Buddha was encouraging us to cultivate, is for all beings, whether we like them or don't like them, that's the kind of goodness that we need to be holding up and cultivating. So when we look at this chaotic circumstance that we find ourselves in and we feel threatened, we feel afraid, well, we've got these teachings that we can remember, we can turn to and and determined to give ourselves into them more fully. There's a one of stanza towards the end of the, the Buddha's discourse on the, the greatest blessings, the Mahamangala Sutta. There's this one line that says, Jitang Yasang Nakampati. That jitta, that awareness that is informed by insight into the Four Noble Truths, is perfectly imperturbable, cannot be shaken. This is, this is the Buddha's realization. This is the Buddha's understanding. This is what the Buddha held up as a possibility for humanity. So although I 
am not aiming at necessarily telling anybody what they should consider as most important. I would suggest that uh, orienting our lives, orienting our practice towards the cultivation of such imperturbability is certainly very worthy. Thank you very much this evening for your attention. Pandamayang Dhamma Gathaya Sadhu Karang Dadamase Sadhu